A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimbare Brüder in America. So kalten Schabes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. Yehuda Geberer here with the next installment in our Malava Malka series. We'll start off with a beautiful response I got from a listener uh, a couple of weeks ago. Had a episode on the Jewish Autonomous Republic in uh, or region rather in Birobijan, in excuse me, in the Russian Far East, and about how you know the really the failed experiment of creating a Jewish Autonomous Republic uh, region. And here is what I got an answer back from someone unbelievable. I quote, great episode. Back in the 90s, Reb Chaim Rubin from Yerushalayim used to go there to do brisin. He met a young 14-year-old Jewish boy on his way to meet his girlfriend. Somehow he convinced the boy to have a brisonia, which is a bris. Reb Chaim did the bris, and then mitzvah, gereris mitzvah, got the boy to come back with him to Moscow to learn in Yeshiva's Ohale Yaakov. He became a very big masmid. Fast forward almost 25 years later, this boy lives in Lakewood, is married, and is part of the beautiful Russian Kahila in Lakewood. End of letter. That is beautiful. I don't think I need to add anything to that, except that uh, if I get more stories like this, then I can become... Uh, I'm just a great storyteller because this is this is this is like a this is this is great. In any event, so thank you. So the the um, what I wanted to speak about tonight is is something that's that's uh, to, uh, becoming more and more popular as the years go on. So it's definitely a phenomenon. Anything that becomes popular, we have to uh, pull it through the laboratory of history to see where it came from. And that is the phenomenon of going to Uman on Rosh Hashanah. It's come to a point where at least in, in Eretz Yisrael, where I live, you have to almost apologize for not going. You have to explain yourself and justify it. So I usually, you know, the first thing I do is I 
pull out my pictures of all the last times I've been to Uman. You know, I, someone will stop me in the street and say, No, you're going to Uman. You're into history. You know what Breslov is. You know what Rabbeinu, Rab Nachman is. And tell him, Okay, when was the last time you were in Uman? And the guy will tell me he was there whenever he was. And inevitably, almost always, I was there more recently with a group. We have a lot of groups going to the Ukraine. And Uman is always a prominent stop in our you know, Ukraine trips. So, and I'll show him the pictures of me there. And, uh, and that, 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 that gets me out of it, um, usually. But still, I'm not the Rosh Hashanah. So, so, um, you know, you have to like, uh, get out, get out of that, uh, get, you know, or, or maybe just I'll go one year. I'll have to see. In any event. So, where does it come from? What's the whole idea? And of course, as, as I'm one to do on these, on these, uh, in these stories, I'm not going to go into explain the whole spiritual aspect of it, for sure not the mystical aspect of it, and there's a lot to say about it, and there's great people out there who are explaining the Torah of Reb Nachman and why Rosh Hashanah Shali Oila Al Hakol, why it's important to go for Hashanah. I'm not going to explain all that because that is very well explained by others who are experts in the Torah. What I'm going to just show is the historical process of how it took place. So we're at the we're in 1810. Um, right after Cholomite Sukkot, when Rab Nachman dies, the founder of Breslov Hasidus, and and uh, as he wanted, there's no successor to him as a Rebbe, as a Tzaddik. He doesn't want it to be a dynasty, which is a whole story in itself. Why not? That's explaining more the Breslov Hasidus, which I hope to do in a future episode. Why is it important that it's not a dynasty? It was what he saw as the pure Hasidus of the Baal Shem Tev, and he did not like the way the dynasties were turning out in the Ukraine and Galicia of his time. He didn't think that was the true way of Avoidas Hasidus. He, 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 he felt that his, his way would be the, a better way. So it can't be a dynasty. So the time-tested way, and we see this all the way down till today, especially in the post-war era, what keeps Hasidus together and what enables it to rejuvenate itself is the idea of the tzaddik, of the court, of the dynasty, of the fact that it passes from generation to the next, that's really what keeps it together, and it works. And it's, it is, it's an indisputable fact, whether, whether there are many people throughout history who haven't liked it, and they think it's not ideal, which I'm not going to get into now, but it works. So Reb of Nemer, of the prime disciple, the prime Talmud of Reb Nachman, he's at a crossroads. How are we going to keep Breslov Hasidus together uh, in the absence of a dynasty, in the absence of a central Rebbe of the Tzaddik? And he has many mechanisms. He prints a lot of the Svarim. They become a Hasidus of the text, which is unique amongst Hasidus. The only other one like that is Chabad. And uh, there's other, other things. And one of the main components of it is that he raises the Rosh Hashanah idea to a central focal point. Now, of course, Reb Nachman himself wrote about it. And he, like you said, Rosh Hashanah Shali Oila there's definitely a lot of mystical aspects to it. But in, in, it was definitely used as a tool of Reb Nassim to keep the Hasidus together. So in, aside from all the spiritual aspect of it and the, the desire to come to the Rebbe for Rosh Hashanah, and to be there, and whatever whatever it does, and whatever it is, it also was a very simple mechanism of keeping the Hasidus alive and together. They build a cloise, the original cloise, which I think they 
they they that they, they have. We visit a old close in, when we go to Uman. I'm trying to remember if it's the original or it was the one that was built a little later. I have to check, double check that. And um, and the and um, a shul that they should daven in when they come to Uman. Now the breast of the Hasidus is very small. Um, it remains small from the its inception in the time of Rabbi Nachman himself up until about 40, 50 years ago. It was a tiny Hasidus. Uh, think about that for for uh, about 150 years. It sustained itself as a very small Hasidus, which is, without a rebbe, without a dynasty, which is miraculous. I think it's rather miraculous. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that they came together, what was called the Groysa Kibbutz, the great gathering for Rosh Hashanah. And they came together. There was a big social aspect to it. We're part of something. Now the Breslover Hasidim throughout the Ukraine were what's, what they called themselves were the Nirdafim. They were chased by others. In, the, in Reb Nachman's life himself, by the Shpailu Zayda and others, in Reb Nassim of Nemerov's life, it was mainly Reb Maisha Savraner, also and others, and then following Reb Nassim's passing and, uh, and uh, the continuation of Breslov Hasid, one of the main leaders at that time was Reb Nachman of Tulchin. So they were pursued by different Chernobyler uh, groups who lived in the Ukraine, mainly by the Hasidim of Reb David of Tolna, Reb David Tversky of Tolna. And uh, there, was, there was a lot of almost persecution and really... Violence to a certain extent, they would break the windows of the clays, they would throw rocks at them when they came to Uman for Hashanah. You have to remember that in Uman at that time, there it was a first of all, it's a fairly large town, it's not a small shtetl in the Ukraine, it's a fairly large town, possibly a border, even like a small city. And uh, most of the Hasidim there were not Breslov. Breslov Hasidim were, like I said, a few hundred families who were spread out over a great geographical area. So most of the Hasidim in Uman were Hasidim of of Reb David of Tolna, of other Chernobyl or, or uh, other uh, Rebbes in the area, and, uh, and the Breslovers uh, suffered at their hands, and it was a big issue. In fact, there's a whole series of, of letters to the editor, the most popular Jewish newspaper at that time in the Russian Empire, was the very famous newspaper Hamelitz. It was a newspaper in Hebrew, and it's a very famous editor, Alexander Cedarboim, which is Cedarboim is a cedar tree, and he his pen name he wrote a large amount for his his paper. It wasn't just the editor; he wrote much for the paper. His the pen name was Erez, which in Hebrew is uh, is obviously cedar tree. So he was he was a a a maskil which which claimed you know which wanted his newspaper to be the voice of the entire Jewish people in Russia. And he definitely had an affinity for tradition, for Jewish life. He got along with a lot of the Litvisher Rabbanim. He lived, he grew up in, in Zamush next to Lublin. He lived in, uh, in Odessa later in St. Petersburg. He knew a lot of the Litvisher Rabbanim in Kovna and Vilna. He's really a story in itself and, and also the story of Hamelitz and in general newspapers in Tsarist Russia, what they wrote, what they didn't write, the censorship of the Tsar. It's also a good topic maybe for another time. And, and, and what's interesting is that there was a, a in the, I think in the 1870s, 1880s, I'm not mistaken, there was a series of letters to the editor, which eventually was a bunch of full-blown articles about the persecution of Breslov Hasidim in Uman, especially when they came for Rosh Hashanah, and, uh, and how it's unfair and it's wrong and social justice should be done. 
And it turned out that the Maskilim and Uman, there are plenty of those also at that time, they were defending the breast livers. They were sticking up for the underdog. And here the Maskilim were known to not be big fans and not fond of, of any Hasidim. And, uh, and here, because the breast livers are the underdog, and possibly for other reasons also, they might have liked them, the fact that they, that they didn't have a dynasty and there wasn't the whole Hasidic court. It's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, uh, could be possibly other subtle, more subtle nuance, nuances in the fact that they received the support of the Maskilim, or simply they felt that it was injustice. And they wrote these letters to Hamelitz, which was published and brought to the attention that Breslov and Hasidim were being persecuted just because they wanted a daven by their Rebbe for Rosh Hashanah. So it continues, this pilgrimage continues throughout the time of the Russian Empire until we come to a major crossroads. And that major crossroads is the Russian Revolution. The Russian Revolution, 1917, eventually the Second Revolution, the October Revolution, brings the Bolsheviks to power. And during the 1920s, following the Civil War in Russia, between the white Russians who backed the Tsar and the red Russians who backed Lenin and the Bolsheviks, the, eventually when the dust settles in the early 20s, 1924, 1925, a, the border is sealed, the Iron cor- Curtain descends across Europe, even though Winston Churchill said it uh, after World War II, he said it in 1946 in a speech in, um, in the United States, but really it started before that. It started in the 1920s, and the Iron Curtain, Soviet Russia, was sealed off from the rest of the world. And here you have a situation where there's Breslov Hasidim stuck behind the Iron Curtain with Uman, but there's anti-religious persecution from the Soviet government, and there's Breslover Hasidim stuck in Poland outside of Uman. There's also a Breslover Kehila community in Eretz Yisrael. So you have the Breslovers under the communists, they continue going to Uman with great Messiris Nefesh, with great self-sacrifice and taking great risks, and they're stopped and they're persecuted and it's not allowed, and the cemetery is desecrated and eventually destroyed, and the oil over of Nachman's grave is destroyed at some point under the Soviets, and uh, it's not easy. It's not easy to go, but they continue going until they're all wiped out by the Nazis during the Holocaust. The Breslovers in Eretz Yisrael, they start to, they, many of them are, are, are in communities with the Hasidim and the Galil and Tzfas and Tveria, and the kibbutz in Eretz Yisrael starts to be surrounding Maron. By and that becomes somewhat of a substitute to going to Uma. But really, the story of Breslov um, outside of the Iron Curtain is uh, we can't, we can't uh, not mention a very fascinating personality and a tremendous person who, to a certain extent, uh, saved Breslov or Hasidus, as we know it. And his name was Rabbi Yitzchak Breiter. Rabbi Yitzchak Breiter was a businessman in Warsaw. He came close to Breslov or Hasidus. A tremendous Talmud Chacham and a Mashpia in Breslov. And here he is, he can't go to Uman. In the early 20s after the war, he was able to still get there for Rosh Hashanah. And now he can't go, the border is sealed. How could it be? Rav Nassim of Nemerov created that the whole basis of the Hasidus is the great Sekibbutz, the great gathering of Rosh Hashanah. Without the great gathering of Rosh Hashanah, there's no Breslov or Hasidus. How do we hold it together? The Hasidus had never existed without going to Uman and Rosh Hashanah. So in his eyes, the very future of Breslov is at stake. Without going to Uman, how does the Hasidus going to remain? 
And here he comes up with an idea that we're going to have a grace of kibbutz without going to Uman. We're still going to create a framework that Rosh Hashanah is the time that Breslov and Hasidim get together. And we're going to daven together and see each other and be a community together from all over Poland. First he does it in Warsaw, and then he finds a great location for it. This is fascinating. It's a, to, to the best of my knowledge, it's unknown. Every single group that I take to Poland and I tell this story to, they've never heard this. But in Lublin was the great Hasidic yeshiva of Rebbein Shapiro, Yeshiva Chachmei Lublin. Now it's a Hasidic yeshiva and it's a big, beautiful building. What do Hasidim do on Rosh Hashanah? They go to their Rebbe. So in the Litvish yeshivas, everyone stayed in the yeshiva for Rosh Hashanah. It was a very uplifting and inspiring davening. But here it's a Hasidic yeshiva in Lublin. So what are you going to do? Everyone goes to the Rebbe. So the yeshiva is empty. So Yitzchak Breiter gets permission from Mermeir Shapiro to make the grace of kibbutz of Breslov and Hasidim in Lublin in the yeshiva. And whenever I go to yeshiva's Chachem Lublin, when we're done talking about the Dafyaymi and Mermeir Shapiro and yeshiva's Chachem Lublin and Rav Shmuel Wozner and everything else, and I throw in a little bit of Breslov history too. And they tell him, right here, this was where the great kibbutz of Breslov and Hasidim was in the interwar period. And they came here for Rosh Hashanah, and that's what kept it going. Yerbislik Breiter was in the Warsaw Ghetto, killed in Treblinka by the Nazis, along with most of the Jews of Poland. And in the post-war, you, ha- you still have a few Breslov Hasidim behind the Iron Curtain who are still tr- struggling to get to Reb Nachman's Kever and Uman for Rosh Hashanah, but it dwindles over time. There are stories, even into the 1960s and 70s, of Jews in Russia who are doing everything they can to keep Yiddishkeit alive, and more than one of them, they mentioned, even if they weren't Breslov Hasidim, but uh, they wanted to go, and they went to Uman for Rosh Hashanah. I've read a, more than one memoir in that, uh, in that, in that vein. And then uh, ultimately what happens is, uh, is that even under the communists, there are Breslov Hasidim and Eretz Yisrael who, who uh, aren't satisfied with the Maron situation. There's also a split in Breslov Hasidim. A lot of the Breslovers they go to Maron. The great kibbutz becomes Reb Shem the grace of kibbutz, of coming together in Rosh Hashanah. Others say, we don't have Uman, we can stay in Yerushalayim. And we stayed in the Breslover Shul in Yerushalayim, Meisharim, still there today. And, uh, and there's two groups, the Maron group and the, and the, uh, and the uh, Yerushalayim group. And now, of course, the only ones left in Europe are a few left behind the Iron Curtain. There's a few in America, small. And again, there's, there's still a small community worldwide. They didn't have the population explosion that we've witnessed in the last 40 years. And, but eventually, what some Hasidim tried to do is that even under the communists, they're going to somehow get to Uman. And they actually go from Eretz Yisrael to Uman um, in the 1970s, the 80s especially, when things seemed to start thawing out. Um, the Glasnost, Gorbachev, and they start to go. There's stories about them crawling under a fence. It was in someone's backyard. The whole cemetery was destroyed and had been built on. And if you go today, when I bring the groups today, you see that there's still buildings around and all kinds of signs of where Kayanim are allowed to go because it's really part of a big cemetery that was destroyed and people would smuggle themselves into this person's backyard where they knew that was the spot where Nachman was and be there on Rosh Hashanah and, and the the local Ukrainians would throw things at them and call the police. And eventually, in the late 80s, early 90s, people like Israel Mayor Gabay, the great uh, 
a grave restorer of Eastern Europe, who I wouldn't have any business without him, because he builds all the oils and the graves, and or a lot of them, I don't want to say all of them, there's plenty of other people who are doing this great Avoidas HaKodesh, great and noble, beautiful work, and he built the one in Brest, in Uman, and with the fall of the Iron Curtain, and with a lot of marketing, eventually we saw, were witness to an increase in the amount, the volume that goes to Uman for Rosh Hashanah, once it became possible. And uh, that's it. The Iron Curtain was open. So Breslov and Hasidim started to go back. The grace of Kibbutz and Maron ended. The one in Yerushalayim continued until a couple of years ago. Yaakov Meir Shechter insisted on staying uh, in Yerushalayim. Until a couple of years ago, he finally caved in. Um, so they had some Breslov and Hasidim staying in Yerushalayim and not going to Uman even until recent years. But for the most part, they all went to Uman and it eventually started attracting others. But the phenomenon of how it attracted so many others, even those who are not Breslov Hasidim, and how it grew so exponentially, so uh, massive, the growth and the amount that started going in recent years, is not for the study of history, but rather for the study of sociology. So I welcome those to come along and explain the phenomenon. So this was Yehudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at YGE, BSS, at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, and for trips and tours to these areas. You can follow Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. Don't miss an episode. You can follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites. And I hope Shashon, 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 Shashon,